German prince by the name of Philip of Hesse organized a, a meeting of the leading reformers of the young Protestant Reformation. And the two captains of the Reformation in that day, who had ind independently begun a Reformation in their own towns, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, were the main characters, even though there were a number of other leading lights in the Reformation of that time. The problem that was facing Philip as a prince among the German states was that this young Reformation that he supported was divided within itself. And he was concerned that the Roman Catholic Church would overwhelm, and particularly the Roman Catholic kings and dukes and princes, would overwhelm these, uh, these baby Protestants because they were bickering. And so he called what has become known as the Marburg Colloquy. He called it together to try to bring these two men, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, into agreement on one particular doctrine, and that was the Lord's Supper. There were 15 points of controversy between the Lutherans and the Zwinglians at the time. And by the end of the colloquy, there was agreement on 14. And you can guess which one they couldn't agree on. Martin Luther took his stand on the Latin phrase, hoc est corpus meum, which means this is my body. He famously wrote it on the tablecloth in chalk so that he could stand and point to it. And that was his solid ground. This is my body. And so he maintained throughout that the body and the, uh, the, the bread and the wine that we take in the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now this is somewhat ironic for Luther to say this because he also ridiculed the Roman Catholic priests who were mostly illiterate and only been trained to say the words. And to them, the hoc est corpus meum was like a magical chant that magically turned the bread into the body of Jesus and the wine into the blood of Jesus. And Luther is attributed with calling that hocus pocus. So that's where that came from. So here, he is taking his stand on that phrase that he himself called hocus pocus. But his intention was to show that the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper are to be taken literally. Zwingli would have none of that. He believed the words were figurative and symbolic. Just as the, the phrase, I am the vine, or I am the door. Jesus, when he said, this is my body, meant this signifies my body. This is my blood. He means this signifies my blood. So Zwingli's position was a, a representative, a symbolic or a memorial meal that we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of what Jesus did at the cross. Now there's an element of truth in, in both of these. But it is hard to agree when one reads what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 10 it's hard to agree with, with either one in particular. Zwingli would take us to John chapter 6, where we will go this morning from 1 Corinthians 10. But in that passage, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. 
And Zwingli would say that that is an earlier commentary. John chapter 6 happened before the Last Supper. This was after the event of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it's as if he is giving a, a pre-commentary as he's speaking about his own body and his own blood being true bread and true wine. He's looking ahead to that institution of the Lord's Supper that he would bring about on that last night of his life. American evangelicalism in the 21st century has largely followed Zwingli when it comes to the Lord's Supper and to baptism. We tend to teach that baptism is a public profession of faith and it symbolizes the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come in, a, in an attitude of remembrance, remembering that Jesus died on the cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed for our sins. But we do it as a memorial, as a symbol. But the Apostle Paul uses different language. In Romans 6, for example, when he speaks of baptism, he speaks in realistic terms. He speaks as if what we're doing when we are baptized is actually and really a burial in Christ and a rising to walk in newness of life. In other words, he doesn't use the language of, of symbolism or of figuratism. And here in 1 Corinthians 10, regarding the Lord's Supper, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? These terms lend us more back in the direction of Martin Luther. Now Luther rejected the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, of which we'll say a little bit this morning. But just in, in brief summary, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread that we take literally changes its substance and becomes the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the wine that we partake of literally changes its substance, that's that word, transubstantiation, and becomes literally the blood of Jesus Christ. Luther's position was a little bit modified from that. He believed that the body and blood of Jesus Christ were with the elements that we partake. They were in them and around them and through them, but did not become the blood and the body. His view has been called consubstantiation because he taught that the, the reality of the flesh of Jesus came with the bread as we eat it. And the reality of Jesus' blood comes with the wine as we drink it. That is the basic Lutheran view to this day. But Paul is dealing with something else here that I think the Lutherans and the Zwinglians and the Roman Catholics have missed. He's dealing with an issue in his own culture, in his own day, an issue that was massively influential in Corinth at the time Paul wrote this letter. And that was the relationship between the altar and pagan gods. And if you listen to what he is saying here, he is recognizing a link that we perhaps do not understand and perhaps we're not comfortable with, but a link between that which is sacrificed on an altar and the God to whom it is sacrificed. 
Listen to what he says again in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is not the language of mere symbolism. This is the language of reality. This is a language of a communion between the element, the meat that was sacrificed to an idol, and the idol itself. Paul does not give any credence to the idols. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? He's not saying that these are really gods, although he does admit that they are indeed spirits. But listen to what he says in verse 20. No, but I say that the thing which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now that's the same word that's used in verse 16, that when we bless the cup and we partake of the cup, we are becoming sharers in the blood of Jesus. And when we bless and break the bread and partake of the bread, we are becoming sharers in the body of Jesus. Now this is a, a difficult concept. I, I prayed as I was walking yesterday evening that the Lord would enable me to make this clear, perhaps even clearer than it is to myself. This is a, a, a concept that in our Western thinking we don't, really, we don't really get into. That there is a connection between what man does on earth and the spiritual forces that are behind it. Paul recognized that connection and he actually recognizes that it can be in a positive light too. Verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? There's that word again. Now here he is not condemning it because under the Mosaic Covenant, the Levitical sacrifice was to the Lord. It was to Jehovah. And the priests and the congregants were to partake of that meal because in partaking of that meal, they were partaking of their God. They were sharers in their God to whom the sacrifice was made. And so verse 18 is a rhetorical question with an implied positive answer. He says... Are not those who eat the sacrifice sharers in the altar? And the answer is yes. Just as in the next verse, in verse 20, excuse me, and 21, those who partake in the meat sacrificed to a demon on an altar are sharers with that demon. Now he's establishing the logic here that teaches us something deeper about the Lord's Supper than what Zwingli maintained that it was simply a memorial, if the Israelite who ate of the meat sacrificed on the altar became a sharer with God, and if the pagan who eats of the meat that was sacrificed to the demon becomes a sharer with that demon, then what of the believer who eats of the bread and of drinks of the wine of communion? Well, that's verse 16 we become sharers in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just sharers in our memory, but sharers in reality. 
sharers as partakers, as ones who are, as Jesus says in John 6, chapter 6, and I'm going to read that passage in more fullness right now, we are those who eat his flesh. We are those who drink his blood. Now, if that statement bothers you, remember that when Jesus said it, many fell away and followed him no more. And they said, what is this man's teaching? It is hard to accept. Starting in verse 53 of John chapter 6, truly, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, in the Greek, it is amen, amen. Some of your Bibles say verily, verily. But it's one of those phrases that when we see it, we should prick up our ears and listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up to, on the last day. And you almost feel like Peter. You know, when Jesus was washing his feet, and Jesus said to Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you have no, no part in me. And Jesus said, or Peter said, well, then wash my whole body, Lord. If he says, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you ha I have no part in Jesus. It's like, give me more. Let me keep eating. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. Modern commentators have pretended that what, John sa what Jesus says and recorded in John 6 has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. And I would say to them, then, what on earth does it have to do with? It most certainly does have to do with the Lord's Supper. It was one of those times when Jesus was teaching them something that they could not understand at the time. But later when the Spirit came upon them, the understanding came with it. And, and as we read the Scriptures now complete, and we read John chapter 6, do not our minds go to the Lord's Supper? Do not our minds take us to that upper room? When Jesus broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he took the cup of blessing and he said, Drink all of it, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my body. This is my blood. And you think back to John and it says, If you do not eat my flesh, if you do not drink my blood, you have no part in me and no life within yourself. I ask you, is that just a memorial meal? Is what we're doing today, later on, just a remembrance? With words like Jesus's and Paul's, I think we have to see that there's something more in this than just our memory. And the issue that has been debated in the church for centuries, for millennia, the issue comes down to where is Jesus Christ? 
during the meal? Where is his body? Where is his blood? While we partake of the bread and the wine. Now we read a passage this morning in Sunday school where Jesus said in John 16, You will not see me anymore because I go to the Father. You will no longer have me here. And that was the the concept and the attitude that guided Zwingli. And his answer to the question, Jesus Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is there not only as eternal and omniscient God, but he is there as man, resurrected from the dead, and yet still 100% human. And because he is at the right hand of the Father, he is not in the bread. He is not in the cup. He is not locally here when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Luther says, no, Jesus is here. He is, his body has been divinized. Now this is where Luther has to kind of make things work for his view, because frankly, Luther didn't move very far from Rome's view. He did not accept the Roman view that the bread becomes flesh and that the cup becomes blood. He could not accept that the bread that we put in our mouth is still bread. For all that the priest says, it's flesh. It still tastes like bread. And the wine that we drink is still wine. For all the priest may say with his hocus hocus pocus, it's still wine and not blood. But Luther still could not get beyond the literal meaning, and I believe it's because his earnest desire was to commune with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so that requires it to be here. And so he taught the divinization of the body, that even though it is a human body, it is a body of the God-man, and therefore it can be everywhere. That's called the ubiquity of Jesus' body, that is everywhere. Zwingli looked at him like, what are you talking about? A physical body is a physical body. When Stephen was being stoned as the proto-martyr of the the Christian church, what did he see? He said, behold, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's what we are, are led through the rest of Scripture. Where is Jesus? He is where he said he would be. I go to be with the Father and you will no longer see me, and you will no longer have me, but I will send another, and he will take from mine and give to you. But I will be in heaven at the right hand of majesty. And I think Zwingli, in a sense, was right in saying, we can't, we can't bring him down. We can't move him around. We can't divinize his human body. There is a time that he has promised when he will again come, visibly, on the clouds of heaven, with the saints. But that is the end of the age. That's not communion. And so at the end of Marburg, there was agreement on 14 points out of 15. Pretty good, except if you read what Luther and Zwingli had to say about each other afterwards, you would think, well, they didn't quite make it. It it was a bust. And if you read the history of Europe you will realize that it was fraught with warfare, religious warfare, for the next 150 years at least. So what do we do with all this? Well, modern Baptists, 
which is a denomination with which many of us are familiar, frankly, just take the Zwinglian view because the other one sounds too Catholic and we just don't want to go there. So we'll just say it's a memorial. We'll just say that baptism is a public profession of faith and it just symbolizes the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll just say that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's a time for us all to remember that Jesus died for us, shed his blood for us, as if a believer could ever forget that. Well, enter Calvin. He's kind of a second-generation reformer. He was still a very young man. I think he was only nine years old when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at the University of Wittenberg. Uh, and though he was a remarkable man, uh, he was not a reformer at age nine. Uh, I, I know that coming from a Presbyterian seminary, sometimes they talk about Calvin as if he was born a reformer, but he wasn't. Um, he was a brilliant man, but he was also a man, he was a man whose mind was able to think in, in a sense, not really paradoxes, but allowing things to stand together because they are in the scripture without making a determination one or the other. And he concluded, by way of a middle path, that we do partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But it's not a literal partaking in that the body and the blood become the flesh, or the body and the blood are, are transferred into the bread and the wine. Nor is it a, a figurative partaking where it's just a symbol. It's a sacramental partaking. Now there's a big word that is kind of hard to understand. In fact, I would say it is a word that was made up or borrowed because we're talking about something that's hard to understand. If you've ever taken any classes in philosophy, you know that that's what philosophers do. When they're dealing with a topic that's hard to understand, they give you big words that you don't understand, and you just sit there in awe thinking, he is so smart but I don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> Which is why I prayed that I could make sense of this even more than it does to me. The word sacramental doesn't mean a whole lot to me. It, it's not one of those, I understand what something literal is. I understand if it's literal. And I understand if it's a figure of speech. But now you're taking the two and you're putting them together and you're calling it a sacrament. What does that mean? Well, it means what Paul's teaching us in 1 Corinthians 10. That just as the pagan partakes of the demon when he eats the meat sacrificed on that altar. And just as the Jew partook of Jehovah when he ate the meat sacrificed on the altar in the tabernacle, so believers partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ when they take of the bread and the wine in communion. Calvin writes, For Christ in instituting the supper promises nothing falsely nor makes us or mocks us with a vain show, but represented by external signs what he has really given us. Now what we're dealing with here is not so much what happens to the bread and what happens to the wine, but what did Jesus say? What did he promise? He promised to be with us. And so Calvin concludes that Christ's presence is real in the bread and the wine 
Because it is promised. And how do we appropriate the promises of God? Through faith, which is the evidence of things hoped for, the presence of Jesus among us. And it's the substance, there's that word again, of things not seen. And so Calvin was able to show us, I think, what Paul is talking about. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I've been mentioning the word sharing and sharers, and that is, I think, clearly the operative word in this passage. And you're familiar with that word, the Greek. It's the word koinonia. Many times it's translated participation or partaking or fellowship, as in the name of our church. But I think the best English word for koinonia is the word communion, which means to become one with. It's a combination word. When we partake of communion, which is redundant, it's like we're saying, when we commune with communion, when we coin with koinonia, I mean, that's, it, it's the same thing. When we commune, we partake. When we partake, we commune. But when we commune, we become one with that which is behind what we eat. When we eat the bread, we become one with the flesh, the body of Jesus. When we drink the wine, we become one with the blood of Jesus. When we do the two together, we become one with the life that is in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. He has become, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a life-giving spirit. And the meal that we celebrate is that meal of life. And that meal that gives us life, as he says, as Jesus says in John chapter 6. The problem, it seems to me, is that Rome and Luther solve this by bringing Christ down. By bringing him from the heavens into the elements. Zwingli wanted the communion to be just a memory. He wanted Jesus to stay in heaven as the God-man, the resurrected man of glory, while we are here on earth partaking of the meal, remembering our Lord and his death at Golgotha. But Calvin recognized that we don't bring Jesus Christ down in communion. The Holy Spirit takes us up. We don't bring the real presence down here among us. He brings us into his throne room where he is really present. Communion with the body of Christ, this again is a scholar writing uh, about Calvin's teaching on communion. He says, Communion with the body of Christ is effected through the descent of the Holy Spirit by whom our souls are lifted up to heaven, there to partake of the life transferred to us from the flesh of Christ. The real presence of Jesus Christ is not in the bread and the wine. But by the bread and the wine, we are brought into the real presence of Jesus Christ. That is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. I pray that it is true for us as we partake of it today. Let us pray. Father, your promise to us is that you would never leave us nor forsake us.
Jesus promised that he would be with us to the end of the age, and yet we know that he is at your right hand. That he is in glory, having gone there before us to receive us, or at the time that you have appointed to come back for us. And so, Father, we have no desire to bring him down, to bring his body back to this earth on which he suffered until that day that he comes in glory at the end of the age. Nonetheless, Father, we desire to be in the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ as we partake of the bread and of the cup. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would take us up, that in the eyes of faith, you would allow us to see our Lord in glory, and that we would understand that we are partaking, we are sharing, we are communing with the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, offered for our sins that perfect sacrifice that has satisfied your eternal justice and has claimed forgiveness of sins for your elect. Father, we ask that this communion, whenever we take it, would be a meal of life, that we would understand that we are communing with our Lord Jesus Christ, his body, his blood. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 